This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This is the scripture text for the sermon this morning from Psalm 119, the first eight verses. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The hardest part about growing up in the States as a second generation South Asian is that I was far from my grandparents and my cousins. Uh, my parents dutifully, because they so missed their parents and their homeland, would save up so that every two to three years we'd fly over during my summer breaks and I'd spend the whole summer in India. And so I'd go from a very relationally impoverished environment living in Chapel Hill with literally no South Asians around me to a family-rich environment where I had more cousins than I knew what to do with. One of the most glorious and shaming moments happened when I was seven years old and visiting my grandparents in India. It was a sleepy, hot summer afternoon. What I mean by that is Orlando on steroids. It was like 95 degrees and 100% humidity. You walk outside and you're wet and no one has air conditioning. Now, my grandfather did well for himself. I've only known him as a retired man, and he was the best grandfather a little boy could ever ask for. I always tied to his hip. And so he had this property, a simple three-bedroom house, and next to it was a field that all the neighborhood kids would play soccer on. And next to the other side was a huge pond that the neighborhood kids liked to fish in. And so it was this great place that attracted all sorts of kids. There was a stream across from his house, and on the other side of it was a, a lower middle-class apartment complex with a business on the very end that sold kind of snacks, you might say. So anyways, as a seven-year-old, I wanted to play with kids my own age, and there was five kids that lived across the way, and I did my best to build a relationship with them. And so it was a hot afternoon, and so my parents and my grandparents were sitting on the porch under the ceiling fan trying to stay cool and watching me in the distance play with a bunch of kids. And there was one particular kid. I did my best to get along with him, but we just did not get along. And I don't remember exactly what he said at that time, but he said something nasty. Instead of receiving it, absorbing it, I needed to protect my dignity at that point, and I escalated things. I retaliated with a push. I remember being a, more of a gentle push, but my parents recollect something else. And, and so it was all about me that moment, and things didn't go so well. And so my mother, from 40 yards away, saw what happened, and she called me over immediately. It created a scene and a buzz and a stir. So as I walked all the way to the porch where my mother was standing now there to receive me, all the neighborhood kids thought this was quite interesting. And so there was 40 kids from the soccer field who are now assembled by the porch. The five kids that I was with followed me across the stream. The kids fishing on the pond. Next thing, there's 60 kids, every kid I knew in the neighborhood, all watching me and my mother. Now, I had shamed my family with my violence. My grandfather's a distinguished man in the community. In an effort to restore my family's dignity, my f- mother found it necessary to shame me as well. Now, my mother further escalated the situation. Now, I need to say, this is not the full story about my mother. There's plenty of wonderful things about my mother, and this is a situation we made up about. And, and I'm not going to throw under the bus as a parent, because I've done things as a parent I wish I have not done. But over the next few minutes, my mother engaged in, let's say, 
overly excessive punishment, which left me sobbing at her feet, begging for her to relent in front of every kid in the neighborhood. They all stood there quietly, soaking it all in. It was quite the mood killer. Every one of them immediately went home after the event. And so I went to the guest bedroom. I sat there sobbing. How do I move on? How do I face my friends again? How do I engage my mother? I did something wrong. My mother did something wrong as well. It was one big mess. I had plenty of questions. I didn't have any answers. I didn't know what to do. And after a few minutes, my grandfather came in, and he just sat down beside me. He didn't say a word. But then again, what would you say in that moment? It was his daughter. It was his grandson. And shame was everywhere. I continued to just look down, sobbing and crying. And eventually, after a while, I looked up at my grandfather, only to find exactly what I needed. As my eyes connected to his, I saw warmth. I saw love. I saw compassion. I saw joy. I saw delight. I saw concern. And through the tears in my eyes, I could see the tears in his. You know, I don't remember much from that point forward. But I do remember that I found power I needed to move on, to move through the shame that covered me and my family. My dignity was restored. The greatest man I knew loved me. Although it's extremely difficult to define, we all live in shame. It's the silent predator that hunts us all. What's amazing about Psalm 119 verses 1 through 8 is it makes a promise that seems too good to be true, that we will not be put to shame that the deep love of God, the gracious kindness of our Father in heaven can be the very thing that anchors us, that carries us through, be very foundational upon which we build our dignity so that we will not have shame. I know what you're thinking. Is this really possible? And if so, how is that possible? This morning we're going to look at three things very briefly. We're going to look at the deconstructive power of shame, the constructive power of the gospel, in the instructive power of God's word. First, the deconstructive power of shame. Defining shame is extremely difficult. The concept is very nebulous. A counselor named Dan Allender has been very helpful to my understanding of this concept. First, shame is the fear exposure. Shame is an experience of the eyes. It's an interpersonal effect. It requires another person. For example, if you're picking your nose, you think nothing of it. If you're removing a whitehead when looking at the mirror, you think nothing of it. But if in your car you happen to pick your nose and you look up the rear of your mirror and see someone looking at you, smiling or totally grossed out, well, then you're horrified because now you're officially gross. The last thing any of us want is for anyone to really know us. And so what we do is we keep people at arm's length. That way we cannot be found wanting or naked or exposed or defenseless. The natural response of an independent person is to hide a little, to blame shift a little. Shame is this deep, dreaded, long-seated, long-held terror come true that we've been found out, that people will finally see that we're a failure or a fraud or not the person we portray ourselves to be, but rather merely a shadow of the person we've been portraying. This is why shame is hiding We run from ourselves to escape our inner agony. We check out and find safety in the numbness we create for ourselves. And the only problem with these two strategies is it just makes things worse. But shame is deeper than that. Shame is more than a fear of exposure. Shame is a fear of the truth. See, shame, when we experience it, exposes our pretense and our deception. It exposes our deficiency or our perceived deficiency in our dignity. Shame exposes our inner ugliness 
that we work so hard to cover up. Each and every one of us in this room spend countless hours trying to develop an image that we portray for others that isn't really true. And when we experience shame, it dismantles the cultural and relational religious coverings we erect over ourselves. Think about this. We feel shame we're having a nice salad with some friends at work, and there's a big piece of spinach hanging out of our teeth during lunch. We feel shame when we leave the public restrooms only to have our coworker point out a piece of uh, toilet paper that hitchhike on for a ride. We feel shame when friends come over for dinner, and it's clear that you and your spouse have had a huge fight and you have not made up. We feel shame when our kids are at a little play date, and our little pumpkin is the irritable one, taking other kids' toys, biting them, and throwing a tantrum. We feel shame when we show up at a staff meeting or 15 minutes late, and we didn't hit every red light. What will people think? What can I possibly do to control the situation? What can I possibly say to spin this? See, the tension to keep up our pretense can be so overwhelming for all of us. The dread of being found out is enough to fuel our radical denial, our workaholism, our perfectionism, and our re-victimization. What we do not want to add to our list of failures is rejection. Here's the sad thing, the reality of all this. No matter how hard the assessment may be from that friend or coworker, it's still more charitable compared to the reality we all hide within. But shame is more than just a fear of truth. Shame is ultimately a fear to trust. See, shame exposes how we really feel about ourselves, what we demand of ourselves and others, what we really believe life can be found, and in unearthed strategies we used to deal with in order to control the world that's totally out of our control. You see, all of us in the room, we all long for dignity. We want worth and value and identity that we can control and be proud of. And we look to other things and other people to give us that dignity. Trust is simply to empower someone or something else to determine our worth and desirability. Shame is always experienced before the one or the thing that we've entitled or given our rights to judge us. For example, I'm terrified to discover to be as a fraud Every day I'm thankful to be a pastor, but when I look at my heart, I'm like, why am I a pastor? Why do y'all pay me a salary? At some point, they're going to figure out I'm a fraud, and they're going to fire me, and they should. And so I work my tail off, and I try to produce, and I, try, and I put my trust in my work, and the approval of others, and the perceived success of this organization. And so when the church is doing well, or at least I perceive the church is doing well, and people seem to appreciate my work, nothing could be better, because now I have dignity and worth. But if my work goes unappreciated, when I perceive the church to be doing poorly, there's nothing worth, worse because I've lost my dignity and my worth, and I cannot escape the judgment and shame that comes with it. Take the average mom in this room. She trusts her amazing skills and gifts as a friend and as a mother. Her dignity may be wrapped up in her performance of her marriage, the development of her kids, and the opportunities to be liked and appreciated as a friend. If she perceives that people value her parenting, her kids, or her marriage, or her values a friend, nothing could be better. But when the perception of the marriage slips, the kids get poor ratings. She seems not to be a good friend because of a comment she might have made, and nothing could be worse. The judgment that ensues is unbearable. See, at the end of the day, we're ruled by our shame. Life becomes like a house of cards. You live more for perception than reality. It doesn't matter if you have a good marriage. It just matters if people think you have one. It doesn't matter if you love God's word or are growing in a dynamic, loving relationship with them. It just matters if people think you have one. 
It, mat- it doesn't matter if you have a loving or you're a loving or respectful person. It just matters if people think you are. The Bible calls this idolatry. Idolatry is placing our longings for what God, only God can provide in someone or something else. Shame is rude in our inherent preference to trust false gods rather than depend and trust on God himself. Shame is this exposure of a foolish trust in a God who is not God. Our culture declares shame arises because I'm a victim. I feel bad about myself. The Bible declares I'm an idolater and I feel foolish and my false gods topples. Shame is an experience of being exposed as a fool. See, the more we weigh into what shame is, we see how deconstructive it is. There is no real foundation for us to build our life in when we build it apart from God. But as we see the deconstructive power of shame, we begin to see the constructive power of the gospel. As much as we hate shame, we'd rather feel it with all its darkness than the alternative. See, illegitimate shame closes down the door at heart. It leaves open the door of self-sufficiency. It leaves open the door to pride when we can fix the problem. It leaves open the door for us to beat ourselves up so we can do better. Think about the syntax of shame in our lives. I'm a jerk. I'm an idiot. I'm fat. I'm stupid. I'm late. I'm never prepared. Shame attacks the self in terms of identity. Why? Because we can do better. Shame is wrapped up in the question, how do I look? How can I fix this? The alternative is legitimate shame, where there's an honest, humble assessment of our woes and our idols where we lack dignity. Humility recognizes that we're not the solution and we need help, which materializes in prayer and honest conversation and community. Legitimate shame asks different questions. How does my conduct look? Not to me, but how does Jesus look because of me? And how can I get help from him and others to see renewal and transformation in my life? You see, God's grace changes everything. God's grace requires us to let go of our God of self-sufficiency. Pride compels us to rectify the wrong. Grace exposes our inability to make anything better. Grace invites us to accept that shame as a gift or an invitation to do one thing, which is to look into the eyes of the one who does not condemn you, but offers you grace and forgiveness and freedom. Think about Jesus, the very author of grace. Think about his incarnation. He left his heavenly throne room in his glory with the Father, with all the angelic beasts around him crying, holy, holy, holy. And he became a human being with all its limitations and frailties and suffering life in this earth. Think about the suffering he did in this world. His family and his friends misunderstood him, mocked him. He never sinned nor lashed out, but he was whipped, beaten, and slandered and crucified for a crime he did not commit. Yet he willingly took an unjust beating for us. Think more keenly on his death for us. The earthly horror of the cross does nothing compared to the heavenly torment he took. He was forsaken by his heavenly Father that we would not be forsaken for our idolatry and our shame. He took on all our sin, all our shame. He took all our indignity and wrapped it around himself. And that's what the Father saw on the cross. And the Father worked out his torment, his wrath upon him. And on the cross in that same place, he took his dignity, his identity, his value, his worth. And he took it off himself and he gave it to us. And for Christians, this is what the Spirit gives us and works in us. And why did he do this? 
so that when you look at your heavenly Father, you do not fear anger or disappointment or wrath, but experience a Father who's all about removing your shame and giving you his love. Now, if this is true for a Christian, then how, how do you get it? How do you enjoy this gospel that can undo the shame that we wrap ourselves in? So finally, I want us to look at the instructive power of God's word. Actually, look at the sermon text. Psalm 119 is David's magnum opus. It's the longest psalm. As there's first eight verses are phenomenal summary or overview of what's to come. And the quick theme you can see in Psalm 119 is the deepest, most intimate fellowship with God is enjoyed by those who love God by loving his word. And the way we can see that is in two ways from Psalm 119, through diligence and desperation. First, diligence. Verses 1 and 2, you see quickly, blessed. Lovers of God's word are blessed. If we want power, it's in God's word. The highest blessings for God's people are reserved for those who love his word. Fundamentally, many of us room doubt this in how we live. Our true faith is constantly displayed in our actions. But look, the blessings are reserved for those who, verse 1, walk in the law of the Lord, who literally live in the law. These men and women are never idle. They're not loitering, but they walk. They're in steady daily communion with good, as if they're just constantly chopping wood, chopping wood day in, day out, to look up one day and see piles of wood all around their home. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep meaning watch, observe, guard with fidelity, as many commentators have summarized, treasure God's law. Over and over in Psalm 119, you see this theme of treasuring God's law. Verse 2, who seek him with their heart. They study, follow practice with application, with care. Four times in Psalm 119, you see the idea of seeking God with a full heart, meaning allowing God's word to have its full effect on you. A couple of verses later, it talks about how we can hide God's word in our heart. Later in Psalm 119, it talks about meditating on God's law day and night. What would it look like for you to seek God's word with your whole heart? How would that look different from what you do today? Look at verse 4. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, which means to carefully observe and not keeping them by accident, not being careless, but rising early and staying up light, late and denying every comfort. I don't know about you, but as I became a Christian, there's a lazy part of me. And I've been looking for that magic pill. That magic pill will make me fall madly in love with Jesus where I don't have to really work for it. So I'm a night owl. Um, <clears throat> coming to City Church has been great for me because I had to get up in the early in the morning and do stuff. But I would much rather stay up at night and I really don't do much at night. I just like to stay up at night and watch Letterman or something. So anyways, uh, what, some of the work I get to do here at City Church is work with another organization called City to City, and I do some India stuff. And the guy I directly report to is a guy named Jay Kyle. Now, Jay Kyle is really good friends with Tim Keller and Randy Pope. He's kind of grown up with these two men. I don't know these two pillars in my denomination very well, but Jay does. So when I was traveling with Jay, I sat him down and said, all right, Jay, give me the magic pill. Tell me about these men, how these men know so much about God. And Jay's like, well, they both get up really early, and they both spend hours reading and studying God's Word and applying it to their lives. Really? That's it? And so, I mean, I've been looking for this magic pill, and I quickly see that I am just not diligent enough. I have to say, one of the reasons I love 
that God's brought my wife and I to City Church, this City Bible Reading. Even though I've been a pastor for over eight years, it's coming to this church that's forced me to consistently read it out loud in my community, and that has begun to change my life and my wife's life. Uh, even though I know God's Word and I can explain it to you, I have not been meditating on it and treasuring it the way I could and should. And so I love this church, the fact that we celebrate God's Word and we recognize its need for a community and that we can journal through it. And it's coming here, eight years in the ministry, uh, for the first time in my life that I can remember in a very long time, I found myself enjoying God's love in his word. But the interesting thing about Psalm 119 is far more than just diligence. It's also desperation. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Verse 5, steadfast is to be firm, established. In my mind, it's like a big oak tree. It literally means a house upon pillars. It's a metaphor for the Temple Mount which in that culture had been the most established, secure thing you could see. It means to be securely determined. But David's sighing in that, oh, that. There's no pretense. There's eager yearning. There's utter helplessness. It's a cry of weakness of the one who's lost his way. He's basically saying, Lord, you must do this. He's talking about all this diligence and meditating and love, but at the end of the day, he's like, God, I can't do this myself. When you read Psalm 119 as a whole, you see that brokenness is the antidote to shame. There's not a single verse in Psalm 119 we can do on our own, and helplessness covers the whole of Psalm 119. When I was in seminary, there was four of us that hung out all the time. We took our classes together, our wives hung out together, a few of them had their babies together. Um, we, we, we spent every lunch together joking around. And of all the four friends we had in seminary, I had one that I don't know how to describe except that he was just really immature. He was the immature guy in our group. And, uh, and when we all graduated, we were all in our different directions, and we got together once a year. Uh, the last time we all got together was about four years ago. And I was blown away by the newfound maturity, power, zeal, and wisdom of the immature one. Uh, he was the one I looked down on in seminary. He's the one I looked at to feel good about myself. And there we were at this, at this retreat, and I was looking at him going, rats, this, this guy's he's way beyond me on me. His wisdom, his love for God's word, his groundness in the gospel, I have nothing on this. And so at some point, I, I maneuvered a, a moment where the two of us were like getting milk or breakfast or something. I don't remember what it was, but I quickly cornered him and said, all right, all right, so what's the magic pill? Where did this come from? How did you change? How did you get transformed? You're a stud now. I don't know what happened here. And he said, Rue, you and the other guys had so much when you came to seminary. You knew who Tim Keller was. You'd quote him. You read all these books. You knew your theology. You could wax eloquent about so many things. I got to seminary and I realized I had nothing. So I got up and prayed and read my, read my Bible every morning. I got up early and early and early because I was desperate for Jesus. And I needed him. Ten years ago, I told myself I could never work for this guy. Now I consider it a privilege. I have a leader that's more desperate for Jesus than I am. And he gets up with reckless abandon to love his God. If you haven't figured it out yet, the immature one's Ted. <laughs> and Ted is not immature. And so as I study his life, like I study Tim Keller's life, like I study Rainy Pope's life, what I've begun to see is nothing short of desperate diligence over years in God's word will produce the character and the hope and the joy and the sustenance we all long for in our Christian life. 
What's the byproduct of diligence and desperation? It's delight. Look at verse 6. Then I will not be part to shame when your hearts occupy with worldly pleasures. There's no room for heavenly joy because your heart is finite. How are you going to ever have present assurance of God's faithful love to you if we're self-indulgent and not watching our heart and immersed in God's word? But when we give ourselves to God's word, it creates space to see this beautiful story where we have a God loving us back, who lives for us, who dies for us, who lives us now, even prays for us constantly. And when we begin to read his word, we begin to sense and see this one who holds us and loves us. But when you give yourself to him, what do you see? Look at verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. You can't help praise the one who loves you and holds you close. We are all covered in shame. Jesus invites us to rest in his life and death and resurrection. Jesus invites us now to sit beside our heavenly father and to look into his eyes. And the way we do that is by looking into his word with desperation and diligence. And if we're willing to pour ourselves into God's word and meditate on it, one day you're going to look up. And through the tears and through your shame, you will find a loving heavenly father looking right back at you. Full of nothing but delight, joy and worth. Because his son died for you. Because his son has made you righteous. Because his son is at work making you more like himself. And there, there is a good home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are desperate for you to give us desperation. We are desperate for you to give us diligence. We recognize left to ourselves, we will continue to cover ourselves with more and more shame. And we long for your rich grace and kindness to uncover us and help us to know the freedom we have before you, Heavenly Father. You know all our sin and have died for it. You have given us your spirit who now works to make us spotless and radiant. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see you in your word. Help us to fall in love with your word. And as we do, renew us and make us more like your son that we will not be put to shame, and more importantly, that we might praise you with upright hearts. We praise your blessed name, Jesus. Amen.